actually when we started with the COVID protocols and rules and such, we saw a lot of folks who hadn't skied with us in 20 or 30 years. They used to ski with us and then they had become out west skiers. And now this year they weren't going to do that and they came back and for the most part, they were just blown away. They had no idea that it was this new modern resort. It had all these amenities and it's less expensive to get to and you can have a really good ski day. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I see you, Minnesota, and I'm giving you intel on your top dog today, Lutes and Mountains. First, though, a hack to get the most out of this podcast. If you're new here, if you haven't heard this bit before, make sure you go to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Not only is the podcast just a small part of the storm, but the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. Here's what I mean by that. There is an article on stormskiing.com that accompanies this and every podcast episode, which provides a ton of additional context on our conversation, including maps, charts, historical tidbits, and analysis about Lutzen Mountains. In addition to the podcast, I am breaking down the world of lift surf skiing with a minimum of 100 articles in the Storm Skiing Newsletter every single year, and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Lutzen Mountains, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, they find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at profilesearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That is profilesearch.com. Episode 152, Jim Vick, General Manager of Lutzen Mountains, Minnesota. Greetings, Minnesota. And apologies. Somehow, I have produced 151 storm skiing podcasts without an episode explicitly focused on one of the greatest ski states in America. I'm going to make it up to you here by starting with the biggest, baddest hunk of ski terrain in the state. Lutzen is not just a great ski area for the Midwest. Lutzen is a great ski area, period, with expansive varied terrain, an enormous footprint, Minnesota's only six-person chairlifts, and the Midwest's only gondola. It is perennially a top 10 resort for Indy Pass Redemptions and the snowiest ski area in the state. But what makes Lutzen really stand out is its parent company, 
Midwest Family Ski Resorts, which also runs a top-notch operation at Granite Peak, Wisconsin, and is gut-renovating Snow River, formerly Big Snow, formerly Indian Head and Blackjack, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Lutzen is one of the Midwest's top ski areas because a team led by the company's CEO, Charles Skinner, and his father, Charles Skinner Sr., who ran the ski area before him, have spent decades making it so. This summer, Midwest family made another huge investment in Lutzen, installing a second six-pack, the Raptor Express on Eagle Mountain, to replace aging triple and double chairs. That should be a big improvement to the ski experience, but not everything went according to plan in 2023. In June, Papa Charlie's, an on-mountain restaurant named after Skinner's father, burned down. A storm washed out the skier bridge on the Moose Return Trail. And in August, Lutzen's ambitious expansion plans, which would have doubled the size of the resort, ran into opposition that could shut the project down for good. Lots to talk about, so let's get right into it. My guest today is the general manager of Lutzen Mountains, Minnesota with an 825-foot lift-served vertical drop and 95 trails spread across four mountains, Lutzen is the largest ski area in Minnesota. He has worked at Lutzen for more than three decades, spending most of that time as the resort's marketing director. Jim Vick is my guest. Jim, welcome to the storm. So fired up to have you. How is everything up in Minnesota today? You know, it's a beautiful day. Sun is shining. The weather is crisp. We are getting into freezing nights, which means snowmaking season and winter is right around the corner. So snowmaking season, that probably has a lot of lutes and listeners fired up here. But we were having a, a little chat before I pushed record here. And you were telling me why you're not making snow yet. I think that's really interesting. Can you share that with us? Sure. Uh, you know, snowmaking is electric intensive. And every circuit has its own meter and every meter has its own demand charges, just like you might have for your own home service. And to spin all the meters, even if it's for one day out of the month, is about a $60,000 bill. And so we get a few days at the end of October intermittently, and it's really tempting to start. But that demand charge has us hold off till the 1st of November. And we are recording this podcast on October 30th. It probably won't hit listeners until November, but that's the reason you might not see those guns going at Lutzen just yet. However, the Minnesota ski season did kick off over the weekend down at Andy's Tower Hills. That's pretty cool for that little operation to be going that fast. How excited do you get when you start to see these smaller areas, Andy's Tower Hills and Wild Mountain and Trollhog and down in the Midwest get open every year? Uh, it's great. You know, it really adds energy to the market. And the fact that Minnesota is regularly one of those contenders on who opens first is exciting for our state even. It's amazing. All right. So you've had no shortage of things going on at Lutzen over the summer. Putting in a big, big lift, the Raptor Express six-pack is going up Eagle Mountain. Tell us about this new lift, Jim, and where is it going to load and where is it going to land? Because it's a little bit different than any lift you have on the mountain right now. Uh, yeah. So this lift is going on Eagle Mountain. It's a Leitner Palma detachable six pack, and it's nearly identical, just a, a few newer technology components than our lift that we put on Caribou over on Moose Mountain uh, about a decade ago. Uh, this has been maybe the most requested thing from guests since we put that lift in over there is uh, we're split two mountains on each side of the Poplar River. And so Eagle Mountain is what we call the main side. That's where you arrive. That's where lodging and ticketing and all that is. And so to have a 
high-speed lift with additional capacity will vastly change the flow of traffic around the mountain and really service this side very well. It, in essence, is replacing the bridge chair. So that ran from the river valley to the top of Eagle Mountain, but it runs parallel to that uh, by about uh, maybe 100 yards. And so similar alignment, just a little bit different path and uh, goes from River Valley to the top. So it, it lands right up by the radio towers on the top of Eagle Mountain. So the bridge chair, which is a 1972 riblet double, is actually staying in place. Is it still going to be open for skiing? And if not, why are you keeping that lift around? That is perhaps the thing that's confused folks most is that while this lift replaces the bridge chair, the bridge chair stays in. We use that in the summertime for the alpine slide and that loads midway. So it has a midway station that goes to the top of the mountain. Uh, To put a midway station on a detachable lift exponentially increases its uh, cost. (laughs) And the bridge lift has plenty of capacity for the alpine slide demand. So we will keep that lift in place for summer use. And this one will be exclusively a winter use lift. The new location also makes it easier to access when you approach it from both sides. So you can access from bridge run or from the Brule run. And this location will eliminate some of the skating that was required to get to the bridge chair. I'm curious also, just to pick up on that conversation we had a moment ago around the power demands of snowmaking, Boyne Mountain in Michigan has a really similar dynamic where they have the Mountain Express six pack. And right next door, they have the Hemlock double chair. And for scenic rides, they tend to run the Hemlock chair. And I asked them why, and they said, well, if you want to see how much it costs to run a six pack versus how much it costs to run a double chair, that's why. Was that a consideration as well, just the ongoing cost of running these things? That certainly is a factor in it. Um, With the bridge chair, it really was a function of a midway station. That was a complete deal breaker. So I didn't even have to do the additional analysis on if I had both and they could both do the same work, then I would look at that. But the midway station was a deal breaker for the express lift. So the bridge chair, as I mentioned, is a 51-year-old lift. And I'm sure that you've done a lot of work and upgrade on. But nonetheless, sometimes folks see the older model and, and kind of wonder what kind of shape it's in. What can you tell us about bridge chair and the kind of care that Lutzen is taking of that chair? and maybe any upgrades that you might have done to it so that it has a good long life ahead of it still? Uh, You know, the fleet of riblet chairs are remarkably easy to work on. And so they all go through annual work. And over time, things do wear and we do scheduled replacements. So cables have been replaced. uh, Gearboxes have been replaced. That's part of a normal operation. We look for that stuff in the between seasons, if you will and then schedule it where we feel it's needed. And so from a safety standpoint, I have full confidence in those lifts. And really what we are looking at is convenience, growth, access, where the high-speed chairs really start to make a difference. Is there any chance, Jim, of just to get ahead of any potential questions from guests, is there any potential that Bridge would run as a redundant lift on super busy days in the winter? Or are you saying, nope, it's mothballed, all winter from now on, no matter what? Uh, We will keep it dug out and at the ready for at least a couple of seasons, I think. I do not expect it to be a capacity issue. The new lift is triple the capacity of the bridge lift. And bridge lift would only build up with wait times 
after 2 p.m. on 12 days out of the year. So I think the new lift will be fine for capacity. Things to still learn is, you know, whether wind exposure or other factors can play into where the new lift might have different parameters that we can run or not run. And so that, that's the main reason for hanging on to the, to the redundant lift. So as far as skiers who make their way over to Moose Mountain, will they be able to ski back to Raptor Express or are they going to have to take the gondola back over to Eagle Mountain? Uh, for right now, we are limited to just the gondola return. Uh, last summer, we had a 100-year flood event, took out three bridges, two of which we replaced for, I don't know, 300 some thousand dollars a piece. Um, and the third was the bridge that was on our ski trail, return trail from Moose Mountain. And that one, unfortunately, not only did the bridge go out, but the river changed course. And so what used to be a 60-foot span is now 225 feet wide and unbridgeable. And that's kind of the only location to do that crossing. We do have future plans to add some surface toes that would take you halfway down that return trail. You would grab a surface toe that brings you over to Mystery Mountain and then a Mystery back to the Raptor Express. But that needs to get scheduled into a capital plan. So when you say it's unbridgeable, do you mean from an engineering standpoint, is it is it just environmentally not feasible to put a, a structure like that where that's located? I'm not sure if you own that land or if that's forest service land. What, what's the challenge specifically that you face down there in that trail? Uh, there's a couple things. Uh, one is the Poplar River is a trout stream. DNR regulates that carefully. I don't know if we could get the permitting to put the footings and foundations we need for that span. The other is it's a gigantic span. And to try to maintain a snow surface on it without machines would be difficult. And to build it big enough to hold machines would be a multi-million dollar bridge. Yeah. It, I don't know if you've ever been to Stowe, but they have a little gondola. It's, it's the shortest gondola I've ever seen, but it just goes basically from one base area to the next. Did you look at something like that? Like maybe a little gondola to go over that stream? Uh, again, I think our solution with the surface toe to pull you to Mystery Mountain is a viable option. Just has to work into a capital budget to get it done. Is there any other trail that you could cut off Moose or, or is it really just a matter of that you kind of reach the limits of the hillside there and you have to go up Mystery in order to go back? That really is our only option. You know, if we go further upstream, if you will, the embankment is too steep to really work on. And further downstream, and then you have an uphill climb after you get across the river anyway. But the uh, the route to mystery, I think, will work quite well. It took some bushwhacking through the forest last summer to even find a route that that could work. But there is a vision for how that might come together. Do you own the land between Moose and Mystery Mountains? Yes. Okay. So Moose Return, for those listening, is out of commission for this year. It sounds like you're working on a solution. You know, another interesting piece of this Raptor Express project, Jim, is that Luton removed the 10th Mountain triple chair. Talk to us about why you took 10 Mountain off. When we first did the alignment, we were trying to keep it, and we were dealing with significant congestion at the top of the mountain from a trail designer standpoint. And as we thought about it, again, I think what would have happened anyway is the 10th mountain chair would have just become obsolete. 
you can ski twice the vertical and the ride time will still be less than riding that lift. And so why lap that one when you can, you know, there won't be lines and the ride time is faster and the ride is smoother and better and all the things that are the advantages of the Raptor Express. And so then because of that, it was easier if we removed the top terminal, then we could change the top terminal location for Raptor Express and give better traffic flow with a long-term investment that a high-speed chair is. That was clearly the right move after struggling through that on paper for a while. Yeah, I'm sure there's some skiers who probably liked 10th Mountain because they could lap the steep stuff at the top of Eagle. You have a bunch of black diamonds for, again, the trail map is in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com for folks listening who are not familiar with Lutzen. But essentially at the top of Eagle is a bunch of black diamonds and double black diamonds. And then it the mountain narrows a little bit from a ski point of view. It, it's still quite broad, but there's only a few trails down. Do you think, Jim, is there an opportunity to maybe cut some glades or some other trails down to Raptor just to give a little more variety for the lower half of that run? Uh, we will do some things. I think we will add a uh, the Brule run, which at this lower part of the pitch is quite wide. We'll expand that to skiers right, make that a little bit of a bowl, and then likely put a, another mogul line on skiers left. We have a couple of fantastic mogul runs on that north side of Eagle. And then if we can put a line of bumps on the lower pitch as well, it just kind of adds to that. I, I think that will give the variety and some train options that will satisfy folks. There is uh, the catwalk trail. Right now we have just... Uh, Ski in access to Eagle Ridge Resort. There was some uh, land movement that occurred there. We've done a whole water removal, if you will. Uh, so we have we've drilled wells and we're pulling water out of the slope to make it stable. That is close to stable. I was able to cap off two of those wells this summer, and so we're getting close to where I think we can start a reconstruction on that, and that will give us another path to open up into a couple of runs that eventually will also be options to get down to the bottom of Raptor. So between Brule and River Run off Catwalk, eventually there may be some trails and or glades down through that pitch of forest? Yes. Actually, the new lift line is very tempting looking already. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so when you look at it, it's like, dang, I want to ski that. <laughs> right. And, and so that will become, I think, another route as soon as we can uh, finish the repairs on Catwalk. And looking at the lift line top to bottom here, Jim, it looks as though it crosses over the resort and a couple roads. So I would imagine that you have no plans to make the top to bottom lift line skiable. Is that fair? That's correct. So you'll be able to ski underneath the lift in a variety of spots until you hit skiers left of the run Harry Carey. And then from there to below Eagle Ridge, there are some utilities. There's a very steep bank that goes down right onto the roadway, a parking lot, another driveway, and some lodging buildings. What's the vertical drop on this lift, Jim Raptor? It is roughly 650 feet. I uh, don't have the exact mm -hmm. elevation on it. The Tenth Mountain chairs, those are always popular. Did you manage to find some new homes for those? Maybe some fire pits around the local area? Uh, we did. That was an interesting riblet because it was built much bigger than most of those early vintage riblet chairs. Uh, this one came from Snowmass and uh, was a long lift, oversized shivs, cable, massive engine in it. But uh, the re-engineering of it for another location became prohibitive for what you'd end up with. So 
at first we were looking at repurposing it somewhere after some analysis it was easier to scrap the steel and to put the chairs up for auction of which there was significant demand uh, so even before we put it we were getting requests of people when they heard we were taking it down uh, memorabilia is a thing people have memories that last a long time once they visit a ski area and owning a chair for your fire pit for your school bus stop for whatever your purpose might be is remarkably uh, in demand what does the resort do with the proceeds from those chairs uh, it's just revenue in. There's a lot of capital going out. And uh, and so to have anything else coming in helps. So any bubbles, heated seats, any kind of fancy stuff on the Raptor Express or just a six-pack high-speed lift? A uh, six-pack high-speed lift at the vertical that we're running and the ride time. The others really, I don't believe to be necessary for that. How did construction go, Jim? Again, we're recording this podcast on October 30th. How close are you to done today and how has the process gone? It's been pretty smooth or any issues? Uh, there are hurdles throughout that might just be the nature of these kinds of building projects. You're on the side of a mountain, but we've been able to make it through. We are still on target for our load test, which is uh, scheduled for November 7th. So. That is imminent and seems to be everything has gone fine now. But uh, there was one tower that we were having issues with soil bearing capacity and mm. ended up having to put in five 50 foot pile. Uh, mm. So that was a audible midway through the construction process. The work to get them driven in was about $25,000, but it was $65,000 to mobilize the crane. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so what's your target opening date here, Jim? Do you anticipate the Raptor Express that folks would be able to ride that on opening day? Uh, well, opening day, uh, we have scheduled for the weekend before Thanksgiving. And that intentionally is just Uller Mountain. That's our easiest runs to get started. It's half the vertical. It gets us spinning and started. And then by Thanksgiving, Raptor, I think, will be ready. I don't know if the snowmaking to service it will be done yet. So it will be Thanksgiving or the weekend following, depending on weather and snowmaking. What's your general opening plan, Jim? So you have such a big operation here. Do you go Uller and then Eagle Mystery Moose? Kind of take us through what your normal plan is. And does Raptor Express scramble that calculus or are you going to follow a traditional plan? Uh, Raptor scrambles it a little bit. So uh, one of the first targets was the run cuckoo off the 10th mountain chair. That gets me a black diamond right from the start. And that was doable most years with the snowmaking window that we would have. By needing to go the full vertical on Eagle Mountain, that snowmaking demand is going to maybe push that. You know, it, we're about 50% year over year on whether we can, when it was Previously, the bridge chair, having bridge chair ready by Thanksgiving. So just the acreage of snow cover that we have to make. Again, Uller's easy. We typically shoot for that the weekend before Thanksgiving. Occasionally get two weeks before Thanksgiving if Thanksgiving falls late on the calendar. Then by Thanksgiving, we try to get at least a couple of routes open on Moose Mountain. If folks are going to travel a distance, having those longer runs makes a difference. And so if I can have moose, I can double our skier visits for Thanksgiving weekend. Is your goal 100% by the holidays, by the Christmas holidays? Are you able to do that? Or is that just a reach that you can hit sometimes? Goal is to get all of our snowmaking runs by the holiday. 
typically there will be, you know, anywhere from two to eight runs that maybe still weren't finished before the holiday and we will still shut down snowmaking during that period because it's too disruptive to the traffic volume. And so that covers what we consider our primary runs, runs that we make snow on and groom. Uh, then we also have a number of off-piste tree runs, gladed runs, that kind of thing. That requires natural snowfall. And some of those are pretty easily covered and open through the holiday. Others go through some pretty bold, rocky terrain, have some cliff drops and other things. And that is often early January before they are able to be skied. So I've interviewed a lot of folks who sit on the east side of the Great Lakes and benefit from that lake effect snow as the weather systems travel west to east over the United States. Lutzen sits on the west shore of Lake Superior. Uh, you know, I'm not a weather guy. I, I don't understand it super well. But it, tell us how, if at all, that location on the lake gives you any sort of lake effect benefits at Lutzen. Uh, we do get lake effect storms, uh, uh, kind of when the nor'easters come through. And uh, so we average 10 feet of snow a year, double of really anywhere else in Minnesota, but not the same as what they get on the other side of the lake. Our primary storm is a low pressure cell that goes just below us, maybe crosses right below Duluth. And as it cycles counterclockwise, that gives us those northeast winds coming off Lake Superior. The last two years, that's where the storm track was. So we were getting pounded. There were maybe 10, 12 legit powder days wow. on a season. But I've also seen years where the just the way that the weather patterns come, they arrive at Lake Superior, and then they just kind of split around it. And on those years, we maybe end up with you know 80 or 90 inches of snowfall. Between the healthy natural snowfall and the snowmaking plant that you built up at Luton, the mountain sometimes can push its season even into May. Didn't quite make it last year. I, I think that was because you wanted to get going on the Eagle construction. As skiers look to Luton's future plans, are you in general going to try to shoot for May when you can? Or was that just a couple lucky years there? Does Eagle change that at all? Kind of what's your thinking around closing dates for Luton? The skiing till May became a specific target that we were doing um, and did it, I don't know, five out of six years. We were running 10th Mountain Chair, north side of Eagle Mountain, doesn't see sun until one o'clock in the afternoon. Pretty easy to do it on if we stockpiled. We had made snow to do that last year and then ended up not doing it because we needed to decommission the 10th Mountain Chair. So whether some of the slope exposures to get to the bottom of Raptor will limit our ability to do that. That's yet to be seen. As we get further down the river valley, it can sit in the shadow a little bit more and have less impact from spring sun. So it's maybe still possible. If we can, I think we will. It Remarkably, it helps our March business. So okay. last week of March is neck and neck with the Christmas holiday. Really? Yeah, with spring breaks and families on vacation, our up north location, our consistent ski conditions. We've more than 20 years, we've been really focused on that, giving some guarantees for snow. And so people have learned that they can count on us for that skiing. But folks who are new to it, they'll call in the beginning of March and they will 
say, you know, well, what's the weather going to be like? Are you still going to be open? Is there any snow? All these questions. And rather than have a discussion about weather, which, of course, we can't predict, we can discuss about patterns. And when we say that we are open into May, then I don't have to explain end of March as as much. <laughs> yeah. So Mar- March is easy if we're open until May. Right. Whereas if right. I'm open into April, that's only a week after they are planning their trip. And that seems a little too mm-hmm. close for comfort. Yeah. You know, silly question, but I have to ask it. Is there a way to load skiers at the mid station of bridge chair? If you want to just run that lift and have skiers ski the upper mountain, or can you not, can you only unload on that mid station? Um, I mean, we load there. So it's, it's not an unload station. It's a load station, but it's not, it doesn't have ski access. So I've done it before when, but before we were open until May, on the 10th mountain chair, but there was still plenty of snow on those north facing runs. And yet the south side had warmed up and the Alpine slide was actually open on the first weekend of May. And the buddy and I were hiking up on these runs and also we noticed the chairlift spinning so we could walk over, climb up and get on and got a few laps in that way. But nice. it's a, you know, a little bit more than a half block walk and you have to load with without skis on and unload in ski boots on a, you know, stationary platform. So it wouldn't be feasible for an operation. So putting all that together as skiers look to the spring of 2024, do you have a target closing date or are you just going to see how it goes? Maybe make it to May, certainly April. I mean, what's your thought process as you go into 2024? Uh, right now we are planning for getting to the last weekend of April, which is, I don't know, the 28th maybe. Um, so skiing through April, with the last three weekends being just on Raptor Express. Any chance of May if it, if it stays good, or are you just committing to last weekend in April and then it's done? Yeah, the again, two years ago, we extended one additional week and actually got two weekends in May because there was still mm. so much snow. Amazing. Um, so if I was in that situation, then I would push it to that first weekend of May. But right now from a experience of managing snowpack and what we feel we can do we're shooting for that last weekend of april still one of the longest seasons in the midwest if not the longest certain years so as though you didn't have enough going on this summer jim the papa charlie's restaurant burned down over the summer tell us what happened where were you when you found out and how did you react to that um it was sad there's a lot of memories a lot of you know i mean just for visitors, for musicians, for, you know, folks who've had that as part of their experience happened overnight. You know, Knight Houseman was, he, he goes through and just does security checks and walk through the building at, you know, 12, 30, one o'clock, something like that. Uh, nothing of note. Our maintenance person arrived at 6 a.m. and saw smoke coming out of the chimney, called 911, then called me. And I was just getting set that it happened to be the morning of the Lutzen 99er and that has an early start and I was gonna this is the first year that we weren't hosting it at the mountain and so I was going to be along highway 61 with my cowbells uh cheering on riders and so I was just getting up for the day I got the call and I think I was maybe out the door with one pant leg on one pant leg off (laughs) Um, got up there by the time I was there the fire department had arrived and um, it was just smoke, but it had filled the building and it was coming out of one of the chimneys. Um, as soon as they were able to break windows and start to assess and fight the fire, that gave it enough oxygen that then it went 
pretty quick. And uh, it became very obvious that we were going to lose the entire structure. The concern then became, because its proximity to the gondola line is close, and so they did an amazing job of shifting focus. Uh, it started on the opposite end of the gondola. Mm-hmm. And so rather than just fighting the blaze, we were able to soak this other side of the building, keep that from burning. And then we were able to push in the walls with an excavator so that the gondola really never had any heat to it at all, which is a big win. So you're fairly remote out there. I do see on Google Maps, the Lutzen Fire Department is not that far away. That doesn't necessarily mean that there were firefighters in the house ready to go. Is that a volunteer department? Is it a professional force? Were they on site? I mean, what what does it take to scramble an emergency force to fight a fire in an area that remote? It's a volunteer fire department. I think I got up to the mountain at 6, 12, 6, 13, something like that. And they were already on site and the call came in at right around 6. So, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Page to the fire station, in the truck, and up to the mountain in 10 or 15 minutes. Do they have reinforcements from a town nearby? We, we, had, we, had, six, we had six departments uh, oh, wow. respond. And so a couple of ladder trucks and uh, pumper trucks, and then there were several trucks that were just running for more water. So mm-hmm. uh, actually our snowmaking system, we have this Lake Superior pipeline, and that has a hydrant down by the highway. And so there was a nonstop run of trucks that were tanker trucks filling up and then coming and filling a pool on site and then going back for more. So uh, yeah, there was six different volunteer fire departments that all were part of that. Were you able to turn any of your snowmaking system, any of your snow guns, were you able to turn any of those around on the building? Uh, We weren't. um, We have done some training and set up for that. The process of filling from the pipeline is just a little bit more efficient. And so they were still using that system. So sounds like the building was a total loss. Thankfully, it sounds like no one was hurt or inside the building when that happened. I guess what ended up happening, Jim, did you demolish what was left? Is insurance covering this? Are you rebuilding? Just take us through the plan from here. Yeah, the building was a total loss. The adjacent building, our ticket office, didn't have any damage, no smoke damage, no paint blistered, no windows out. It was only 20 feet away from the corner of the Charlie's building. So again, kudos to the fire departments to keep it from spreading any further. We have good insurance. And so we are working on plans to do a rebuild. Uh, We get some hindsight on it so we can take care of things that maybe drove us crazy for years. Um, (laughs) And so we're starting that planning. The signs are also there that even with good insurance and replacement value and all of that, new construction is going to run way higher than what insurance covers. So that that's going to be a fairly significant project. Uh, we also have some mitigation to do for the immediate season. We won't, because there wasn't near enough time to do the planning and building to be ready for this season. We kind of knew that right away. So for the daytime crowd, we are doing some changes in the kitchen in our historic chalet. Uh, Before there was a Papa Charlie's, there was a bar on the third floor of that chalet, and that is becoming a Apreski bar again. So we can have that service. The piece that we will be missing is we don't have the concert venue that Papa Charlie's became. And so we'll have a a season without concerts. A few years back, I would have thought that that would be almost impossible as well because it's such a part of our brand. But then we went through the COVID years where we couldn't do concerts either, and we 
everyone still managed to come out and have a really good time. So I think we'll be okay. So for the listeners who are not familiar with the Lutzen Mountain culture, this was not only a business loss, it was a symbolic loss as well. Tell us who Papa Charlie's was named after and what he meant to Lutzen Mountains. Uh, Charlie Skinner Sr. is Papa Charlie. So that's uh, Charles Skinner's dad. Early ski pioneer, he was built a few ski areas, worked at some areas, very influential in early development of snowmaking. I think he was consulted back when the Olympics were at Squaw Valley to come in and help them make snow because they were having a low snow year for that. And he, he was one of the guys that had expertise in that. That's who I started for when I started working there. And uh, he just had this sense of how to do stuff and make, I mean, it's not an easy business to be in. And so you have to make some choices to be as efficient as you can and still make progress forward. And Charlie was amazing at that. So as you look to rebuild this building, do you have some blueprints drawn up? Do you have some concepts? Is there anything you can tell us about? Will it be bigger? Will it have different features? Anything you can tease or are you just not ready to talk about it yet? It's still a little bit early. Um, I mean, one of the things that we have certainly looked at is maybe splitting the dining and events side of things. We also have Mm -hmm. some vision for lodging. And so there's additional components to add and it might end up being in a series of buildings that are adjacent rather than all in one encompassing. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it, you know, sometimes you go to these ski areas and especially some of the older ones, they'll just have everything in one giant building. And, and as you're describing the way that the firefighters were able to protect the ticket building and the gondola building, I'm like, maybe separate buildings is the way to go. Yeah. There, there's some of that. And just, you know, the difference in use and I mean, the all in one helps you pay the construction spot in multiple different ways, has its advantages, but then operationally you're, you know, somebody is dining, they have their family, they are looking for a nice meal. And in the meanwhile, we're doing sound check and the drum is just, you know, going bong, bong, bong. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, um, And so you inherently have some conflicts when you multitask a building. All right, Jim, well, you've certainly seen a lot of changes at Lutzen over the decades you've been there, 30 years, as I mentioned in the intro, and that's a, a good long career. Did you come there from outside the area? Did you grow up nearby? Where are you from originally, Jim? Did you grow up skiing? Uh, I grew up skiing down in Red Wing, Rivertown, Southern Minnesota, and so kind of had it in my blood from an early age. I think I started skiing when I was four. I started working at a ski area when I was maybe 12, painting shelves in a rental shop. So I could Which one? Uh, Mount Frontenac. Okay. Um, and uh, so painting shelves so I could earn a season pass. And then um, our junior high phi ed teacher was moonlighting as a ski school director. And he recruited a bunch of us hill rats that were out there all the time. Put us into a instructor training program because they had school groups and college for credit classes and all this e-school demand and not enough instructors. And so we did a year of training, a year of shadowing, and then we were thrown out into the workforce. And so I think I was teaching four credit college classes when I was 15 and and, and giving letter grades at the end of six weeks. (laughs) Was that a tough class to grade? Uh, no, it was an easy class to grade, and I, I didn't think twice about it. And the students who I had, I don't think 
ever quite figured out how young I really was. Um, <laughs> but you learn a lot about progression when you have the same class for two hours a week for six weeks in a row and can take somebody from being a never ever skier to really being an expert skier. You know, typically instructors get somebody for a lesson or two and, you know, they're up for the weekend or they come in and are looking for pointers, but to have the opportunity to have a continuous class for six weeks. And that was probably three nights a week that I was doing that. So it gives a progression of skiing. So how much did that experience, Jim, contribute to your motivation to make skiing a career? And, and, and how did that happen? Because it's one thing to do it as a teenager, right? I think a lot of people worked at a ski area as one of their first jobs, but here you are several decades later. So what was it that ultimately kept you around and where did you go from that experience? Well, I, because of just being around in that industry, doing my teaching thing, then I also helped manage the rental shop ran the ski school, did some group sales, eventually took over when the person who was the operations manager had retired. Basically, it was like, well, this kid kind of knows what's going on. So I, I took an operations manager position when I was maybe 22. Worked my way through college doing that. Got a degree to be a city planner. Mm -hmm. I got a job as a city planner. Got to August and I was like, oh, I got to go find a ski area to work at. <laughs> 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 so threw that degree away. <laughs> um, my strength really was in the teaching, the ski school side of things. Had looked around a few spots and Lutzen was looking for a ski school director. So that was 1985 and I moved up at that point. Were you still in Southern Minnesota for the city planning job? I was. I was based out of the Twin Cities for that. So I was there. I Actually, I did a couple years uh, where I went to school in Northern Wisconsin and taught at Indian Head, which is now Snow River. So mm -hmm. yep. having that yeah. part of the family is, is kind of fun for me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I actually have, uh, I have, I'm hosting Benjamin Bart's Snow River GM on soon to talk about their new six pack. So Midwest Family Ski Resorts, which owns both, has had a very busy summer. So take us back here, Jim, to, I think you just said 1985 when you first came to Lutzen. What was Lutzen like when you arrived and how has it evolved over the years? Oh, it was a much simpler operation. We had expanded to Moose Mountain by then. So that was uh, Charlie Sr.'s vision. And really one of the game changers for us is the train over there skis really well. It's 825 of solid skiable vertical, has pitched the top, gives a little bit of a flatter section midway, and then finishes really strong. So skiing that top to bottom is really kind of the length of what you might ski. Even if you're on a mountain with 4,000 feet of vertical, you're skiing 800 at a time. And so it just, it skis different than anything else in the mid part of the country and allowed us to become a destination alternative to going out West. But that was still with the train. It was old lifts, reused lifts, repurposed lifts, snow guns that were handmade, used snow cats. You know, again, Charlie was putting it together. The revenue wasn't there to go out and buy it all new. And so we had to find a way to do it. Dirt road coming in would completely muck out in the spring. I mean, it'd be two tracks and you drag the bottom of your vehicle through it. Um, <laughs> our uh, office headquarters were two offices with particle board walls above the ski patrol building. And I think we had four employees. I, I stayed on that summer and there was four mm -hmm. of us who were then full-time year-round, uh, one oh, of those wow. being Charlie, the owner. <laughs> Amazing. So 
with that image in your head, and I have listeners from all over the country, and many of them have not skied the Midwest at all, paint a picture for us of Lutzen today and what you're going to see and experience when you come ski there. It is a completely different resort. There's a significant amount of ski and ski out lodging, so it has a resort feel to it. Uh, we're spread out over four mountains and actually spread over a thousand acres. So it feels really big. When you're on one mountain and you look across the valley and you see runs on the other, there isn't anywhere else in the Midwest that has that feel. It's all connected. You can ski around between it all. So the traffic flow goes well, looks out over Lake Superior. And then when we started adding new high-speed lifts, first with the Caribou Express over on Moose Mountain, and then when we replace the gondola, all of that adds to being a new modern resort. Papa Charlie's added an entertainment piece that was seen as one of the best entertainment venues in ski country. Uh, the mm -hmm. Grammy award-winning acts and rock and roll hall of famers and all of that coming through on what is otherwise a remote Northern Minnesota location. And then somewhere along the way, you know, the stuff that's not near as sexy uh, stormwater systems that allowed us to get rid of a county road with big wide ditches and put in curb and gutter and storm sewer and sidewalks. And curb appeal is a cliche, but it is very real. And when you tighten things up like that, the whole place feels differently. So that transformation that you just described was remarkable. And there's really nothing inevitable about it. And for the listeners, you were named general manager in 2022. Most of that time you were at Luton, you were the marketing director, which means that you had a big hand in crafting this brand. And Luton has a lot going for it. All the, the scale and the vertical drop that you just described and some really great terrain and some nice consistent snowfall. It's also pretty remote and Midwesterners aren't afraid to drive, but you do have to figure out a way to get them to drive past the other 15 ski areas that they're going to pass on the interstate on their way up to you. So how were you able to do this, Jim? What was your role in crafting this story of Lutzen from, you know, a nice big mountain, but a bit of a backwater to really what is one of, if not the premier ski resort in the entire Midwest? We needed to capitalize on not just our ski terrain, but really the experience of being here. The North Shore is a really spectacular place. Uh, Lake Superior stays open for all or at least most of the winter. Um, if we get ice on it, it lasts for a week or two and then the wind shifts and it blows away again. So that blue water contrasting with the snow and the rocky coast, we have an exceptional collection of lodging properties. So the resorts that are along Lake Superior, along with the properties that are up on the mountain, give some really high-end vacation-style lodging options of condos and motel rooms and cabins in the woods. And, and so it's this great collection of lodging that is part of the destination. You take in the scenic side of it and really grab that and you know start working with some stunning imagery of how special this place is. And then folks will eventually start to realize that the train is also different. Actually, when we Started with the first winter that we were open under COVID protocols and rules and such. And there was a lot of travel restrictions. Um, people were not wanting to travel far, but they wanted to get out of the city. And so we, we saw a lot of folks who hadn't skied with us in 20 or 30 years. They used to ski with us and then they had become out west skiers. And they did one trip out west 
you know, each year. And, and now this year they weren't going to do that. And they came back and for the most part, they were just blown away. They had no idea that we had progressed from the scene I painted when I had first started. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that it was this new modern resort. It had all these amenities. It had all the things. It's much closer and it's less expensive to get to. And you can have a really good ski day. You can ski to your heart's content and you are exhausted by the end of the day and you've been challenged. Yeah, I, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, it's it's only four hours north of the Twin Cities. It's not quite as remote as, say, Bohemia, which is a 10-hour drive from Detroit, Michigan's largest city. But when you're trying to compete with the West, because you can fly to Denver and be up at Keystone in about that same amount of time, that what you just described is is what Charles Skinner has told me in past conversations he's been trying to achieve and, and you've been trying to achieve at Lutzen for a long time, which is make folks see this as a true alternative. It sounds like you had a really good opportunity to do that. Now, going into our fourth season post-COVID, are those folks sticking around? Are they saying, okay, this really is a good alternative? Are you seeing them come back? Yes. Um, I think we got reintroduced to them. And doesn't mean that they might not go out west still. I go out west every year. I, I'm a yeah. ski junkie, and I, I like that train. But I can be on a 10-day trip and come home, and that afternoon that I get home, still go out and ski at Lutzen and not feel let down at all. And I think those skiers realize that this has now become an also trip. And so why wouldn't you also pack in a long weekend or some other piece? So so that, that group, I think we are seeing, they returned because they realized what we had and hadn't quite done that. And then our other primary market, you know, the family market. And now it's not just, you know, me and my buddy and we're going to hop on a plane and go, but it's a family of four and the logistics of those airline tickets and schlepping through the airport and all the gear it takes. And mm-hmm. I mean, that process is not easy. Um, right. And so the simplicity of loading in your car, driving, unloading right into your units, and they're mostly blue groomer skiers. They want variety. And so they're looking for someplace they can ski for days and keep on exploring, but they aren't looking for deep powder. They aren't looking for gnarly shoots. You know, there might be some in the party that are still very solid expert skiers. They're looking for challenge and we have that, Um, but they can get really most of what they're looking for. And so there's a significant part of our crowd that would prefer to be here rather than out West. And so we've been able to really go after that market as well. Where do you like to go when you go out west, Jim? Just curious. Do you have a regular circuit or do you try, like to try different places? I, I, I'm a, a visit a whole bunch of places kind of guy. So uh-huh. I'll do a road trip and hit, you know, six, seven ski areas on a trip. I don't know. I've collected maybe 130 ski areas that I've visited now or Amazing. something like that. Uh, so, so, so I like seeing what else is out there. There's a few that have lured me back. And so I have my favorites, but I keep exploring. So when you're out there and you're having chairlift conversations, are you surprised by how many folks that you meet who are Lutzen skiers who are from Minnesota? Um, yeah, actually, my favorite here is uh, I jumped on an Indy Pass tour to Japan this year. There was 18 people had Indy Passes from across the country on that tour, and eight of us were from Minnesota. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and all had skied Lutzen. How was that Japan ski experience? It's fantastic. Um, I'll do that again. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So I, I just want to go back to the Skinners real quick here, Jim. So so for the listeners to clear up some confusion that I may have caused, we were talking about Papa Charlie and Charles Skinner Sr. 
Charles Skinner, his son, now runs Midwest Family Ski Resorts, which owns Lutzen, Granite Peak in Wisconsin, and Snow River in Michigan. Just talk a little bit here, Jim, because you've had this experience of working with both of the Skinners about their legacy and what they've been able to create. Because what, what impresses me about Charles Skinner Jr., the current Charles Skinner, is when he bought Granite Peak, I mean, that thing was a backwater and it was it was small and it was run down and he's transformed it into the best ski area in Wisconsin or one of the top ski areas in Wisconsin. It seems like he's doing the same thing to Snow River. Like I said, nothing inevitable about Lutzen necessarily becoming the Midwest top ski area, but it did. So what's it been like to work with the Skinners and be part of this legacy? And what is it about them that enables and empowers such excellence in running these ski areas? So as I talked earlier, Charlie was master at making stuff happen when you didn't have the capital resources to bring it in all shiny and new mm-hmm. um, and get things started. And And it takes some of that to really make it work. And Charles uh, Jr., the current Charles Skinner, that's that owns the three, he is bold and willing to take risk and do the investments, and then we just do what it takes to be able to continue them. So you have a vision for a project, and then you you know, make a commitment, and he'll make commitments pretty quick sometimes. Gets an idea, sees, sees a vision, and next thing you know, we're on a new path, and then we need to make that path work because he's put a lot into it. And so far it has. It's, uh, and again, then you look at what happened with Granite Peak, you know, I, I was there last year on a peak February Saturday and watching it function as a fully fledged modern ski resort. I mean, the base campus is just working really well and people are in and out. And I was anonymously just kind of skiing on my own and riding the chair and chatting with folks about where they come from and what they're doing. And they are fully in on this place is special. They you know, and so we've been able to do that, that the folks who visit are fully embracing what it is and what it takes, and they are committed to it. They they love visiting. They love the experience. One of those big bets and bold moves that the Skinners made was putting in the Midwest-only gondola. And if my math is right, if you arrived in 1985, you were there for the first gondola install in 1988. So for folks who are not familiar with Lutzen, this is a little bit different gondola than some they may be thinking of, where it's a little more of a transport lift than an actual ski lift. But talk about that lift and how transformative that was. And just for folks who are not familiar with the resort, just break down what that lift is actually for and what it's and how it works. Yeah, that lift um, we put in in 88, 89. So we'd already been skiing on Moose Mountain and high-speed chairs were just kind of hitting the market big time. Uh, Spirit Mountain, I think, had just put one in a few years earlier. And Charlie Sr. was looking at putting in a high-speed chair over on Moose Mountain. But in the meanwhile, to get to and from Moose Mountain, we uh, had ski trails, but they were long, some uphill on it, did not have snowmaking on it, so they were at the mercy of weather. And then when the trails weren't skiable, we had a janky old school bus that would drive you back and forth. <laughs> okay. And so it just wasn't going to be the end-all solution. Yeah. And when the Western resorts were replacing gondolas with high-speed chairs, there happened to be some used gondolas on the market. And I'd kind of thrown off to Charlie Sr. that, you know, 
forget the high-speed chair. Like, we need to figure out transportation to Moose Mountain. Find yourself a used gondola. And like, that was it. I, I didn't say hardly anything more than that. And two months later, he came and threw a stack of photos down on my desk and said, look what I just bought. And it was the, it was the Loon Mountain Gondola. <laughs> amazing, amazing. <laughs> and uh, so that was very exciting. Um, yeah. It did solve our transportation issue back and forth from Moose Mountain. It also helped us grow our summer business because we were using it for sightseeing rides and really became an icon of a mountain lift. So from a branding perspective, the cherry red gondola next to a cliff looking out over Lake Superior was something that we could put out there that really said that Lutzen was different than anywhere else in the Midwest. Otherwise, we talk about it and everyone would hear that we're bigger. Yeah, sure, you're bigger. You have, you know, but we're still put into a context of being a Midwest ski area. And so seen as bigger than Afton Alps or Buck Hill, you know, down in the Twin Cities, is still, I mean, and again, they serve a great function. So this is not even disregarding what they do, but they're just on a different scale than we are. And the gondola was the first piece that said, oh, wait, this is maybe a legitimate mountain resort. And uh, and it's really continued with that since then. And I'm, I'm telling you, Jim, it is so impressive to see the gondola climbing up that sheer rock wall toward Moose Mountain. If I just showed someone that picture, and ask them where it was. I, I don't think that anyone, unless they had known it was Lucen, would ever guess Minnesota. I mean, it, it really, seeing that one picture will really change most people's perspective in the way they think about this. Yes. And it solved an issue of transportation to and from the expanse of the skiing that we have. But the branding that it can do in one quick instant lets you say that you are different. And that is then what's allowed us to grow which gets the capital to then put in a high-speed chair to replace a gondola, to put in another high-speed chair, to rebuild a Papa Charlie's, all those things build from there. So in 2015, as you just mentioned, you did replace that gondola, actually went from a four-person to an eight-person. And, you know, I'm sure it was bittersweet to say goodbye to those really cool, classic, old four-person gondola cars from Loon. And I, I think any Loon listeners are are fuming right now because they still have a four passenger gondola there that I, I know their skiers do not appreciate. It would love to go up to an eight. So talk about that decision, Jim, to upgrade the gondola and why it was time and why ultimately an eight passenger machine made more sense. We had outgrown the capacity of, of that one. So it was operating just fine, but the four person cabins, it wasn't automated. You know, our interval between cabins was 35, 40 seconds, something like that. That's what it took to load in because self-loading is not at grade, you know, just a number of things about it. And so we'd outgrown it. The lines would get long on it. It was no longer keeping up with where we were at. The new one, again, this is now in the Charles and his partner, Tom Ryder at the time, uh, that era being bold, making some big decisions. And so to replace that with one that could have that capacity was a big move. It's, I mean, it's as nice as a ski lift gets. You go anywhere in the world and the Doppelmeyer eight-person gondola is is a standard. That's the best of best lifts. So to have that and be able to use it as we do, and again, all seasons. Uh, right now, some of my biggest wait times and biggest traffic is for fall color rides. Mm. So speaking of big, bold plans here, Jim, let's talk about the master plan. So Lutzen has been at work 
on an expansion, a multi-part expansion in, in a couple different directions onto adjacent Forest Service land. That plan is stalled right now, but we'll talk about what happened there. But just in broad terms, summarize the master plan for us, Jim. How would Lutzen have grown under this plan, both on Moose and Eagle Mountains? Uh, there's a couple of components to it. One, and again, this is Charles and, and vision of next generation of skiing. So we're set up pretty well right now with the train we have and the biggest footprint and highest vertical and you know all that. But as we continue to hang on to skiers from a Midwest regional area and have them choose Lutzen as their destination as opposed to going out west, that variety is is important. And the more terrain, the longer your length of stay and all of that. So it would expand runs. Uh, the other piece is right now we're currently built mostly into the river valley of the Poplar River. So four mountains, two on each side. And the river valley cuts fairly steep. And so the amount of green terrain we have is limited. So that introductory market, the families that are just getting started and novice skiers. And so all of the new expansion terrain is outside of that Poplar River watershed. It does not go into the river valley. And therefore, it allows us consistent green terrain to add into the mix. It also adds some of those nice blue cruisers. It adds some graded area. And then the third component is, again, because we're fairly tight in this river valley, the space that we have to expand parking is limited. The space that we have to expand for another chalet or some additional lodging is limited. And so there's space available to expand facilities. Right now, probably our number one capacity limit is not lift capacity, skiable acreage, or even chalet capacity. It is parking. So the expansion would have almost doubled the size or, or maybe even doubled the size of the skiable terrain at Lutzen. It was a really ambitious project, and I know it went through several iterations, and you've been working on this for years and years. In August, Lutzen asked the U.S. Forest Service, who owns the land that you want to expand onto, to pause on their decision, your application to expand. And in a draft record of decision, Forest Supervisor Thomas Hall recommended the no-action alternative to the master plan, which really shut the project down in its current form. What can you tell us about what happened, Jim, with the master plan? Uh, the landscape changed some from when we started, and it became a little more apparent. So it wasn't fully, I don't know, disclosed, known, whatever, but there are three tribes in the northern part of the country here that have treaty rights that go back to the 1800s. And it largely overlaps with where the federal government has their lands. And they've asked for a more active part in that. And so they were working with the Forest Service on how decisions would even be made. And that has come on since we got started with ours. They had recently signed a new memorandum of understanding with the Forest Service to be equal partners in that. And there's some stuff that the Forest Service and the tribes need to work out, uh, rightfully so. And uh, and so once we got the picture of what was really going on and the fact that the Forest Service really needed to work through how this is going to work, we asked that they just park ours for now. And uh, now is not the time to be testing that. And uh, there's still stuff to be worked out. 
And then the Forest Service, they still need to, because of how they work and function, they still need decisions to keep whatever, you know, moving. Mm-hmm. And they had three decisions. Two were some form of expansion and one was to not. And so that, that was their formal way of saying, okay, then here's where we are now. Lutzen had until October 10th to file an objection to Supervisor Hall's recommendation. Did you do so? Uh, yes. And what is the process now? How? What's the timeline? How long do they have to respond? What can you tell us about the bureaucracy that this thing has to work its way through? Um, we're still learning some of that. I mean, the objection is, again, the stated process to stay in the conversation. So uh, not necessarily objecting with their decision at this time, but rather by stating that, that means we can still discuss it. We feel there are still attributes that once things are worked out, can work for all parties involved. And this allows us to do that. The timeline on when that may occur and what that is, um, I don't have at this point. And in our current state of needing to rebuild Papa Charlie's and a few other things, there's plenty on our plate right now that um, that if it goes into a, uh, a few years delay, that fits, I think, our timeline. So it sounds like it's fair to say, Jim, that you're not giving up on this expansion potential yet. Going into Supervisor Hall's decision, and this is all public record, he he cited in recommending no action, he cited what he called, quote, irreversible damage to mature white cedar and sugar maple stands, displacement of backcountry skiers, negative impacts to the 300-mile-long Superior Hiking Trail, objections from Native American communities, and water quality concerns. He, he cited all those as reasons for his no action decision. Just looking at these broadly, Jim, do you think that there are any of those that you cannot find a compromise on? Or, or do you think there's a solution that can work for all of those groups and all of those factors that I just pointed out? Yeah. So all of those items were basically identified in the EIS, the environmental impact statement that we had to file for this application. And so they came up But in the 300-some page report and study, which was very thorough, and and when we presented that a couple of years ago, I mean, actually, it's we did some of the initial research, and then the Forest Service did their piece, and they presented it. And in all of those cases, the impact was fairly minor, and in, I believe, all cases could be mitigated. So they were identified as concerns. And that's what he brought out in this. But we don't think that the report showed that any of them were prohibitive, that you know, it, it allows you to adjust your development to acknowledge those and then mitigate. How much of this, Jim, do you think is reps with the Forest Service? Because the majority of Western ski areas in the United States are, in fact, built on Forest Service land. In the Midwest, there are very, very few. In fact, Lutzen is one of the only ones that has been on Forest Service land. How much of this do you think is just, so you look at the White River National Forest, they have 11 in Colorado, they have 11 ski areas, right? So they're used to this, they understand what the relationship is like. Do you think this is a matter of just helping the Forest Service understand in general how that partnership between a ski area and a Forest Service can work to be productive for the public? Uh, That may have something to do with it, you know, that this was new and uh, for this Midwest district and Superior National Forest in particular, um, whereas, you know, it's fairly common out West, they end up with folks who 
work in that area who are more fluent in it. We also ended up with, I think, maybe four different forest supervisors who were active during the course of our, from the start of our application until now. Yeah. And, and so that doesn't help any, at least. And, you know, well-intended and reasonable and willing to work with us. But I, I believe it's still different than if somebody is out West and they've done a half dozen of these already, mm-hmm. they can see it a little bit differently. You know, really interesting to mention to this, Jim, is that Lutzen, from my understanding, actually was on Forest Service land. And I'm not sure if you orchestrated some kind of land swap or what happened there. But what can you tell us about that history and about the process that put Lutzen onto private land now? And if any of that is instructive for how you could handle this future proposed expansion? The pieces that we had previously were just a couple of small corners. It was really more mm-hmm. of a function of north-south property lines and a uh, parcel that didn't, you know, a, a slope of a hill that didn't follow the uh, property lines. Yeah. So two small sections, fairly minor acreage that were on Forest Service land, still had a special use permit to use it. Forest Service would come out and inspect. And that one was really more a matter of convenience for both parties. Forest Service didn't have any particular expertise in our business, and it was a small piece of it. And I think what was traded was... You know, there's some private parcels inland that are interrupting what would otherwise be contiguous forest lands. And so there was an era where they were trying to eliminate some of those. So so anyway, there there was some trading that was more possible at that moment. We have a cross-country trail that has a uh, special use permit with the Forest Service. Uh, We've had bike trails over time. So we've been familiar with some of that special use permit process, but the ski area development piece was a bigger piece. Do you think that a land swap would be possible here? Or are you just talking about too much land in the case of Moose Mountain? Um, that seems like a reasonable solution to me. I'm not sure if that's where the Forest Service is at with their management practices now. I want to make sure I have this straight, Jim. The ex- proposed expansion on Eagle Mountain, is that also on Forest Service land? Yes. Yeah. So, okay. so, so both sides, the Eagle Mountain and the Moose Mountain side were both on Forest Service parcels. So we are basically surrounded by Superior National Forest on all of our private boundaries, other than on the lake side where there's some other private lands. All right. So back to improving what you do have. Now that we have a six pack going up Eagle Mountain, that gives you two nice sixers. Then you have Allure and Mystery that are still running riblet double chairs, pretty old ones. Long term, what are your thoughts on upgrading Allure and Mystery? I'm, I'm sure that the folks who are familiar with Granite Peak and see all the nice high speeds they have down there would like to explore some new lifts. So so what uh, what's your priority over there and what's your long-term thought on each of those? Both will eventually get replaced. Um, I don't know that either would get a high speed. Uller certainly doesn't need it. It's only 350 feet of vertical. And Mystery just doesn't have enough terrain to feed it that uh, I think both will be contenders for a fixed grip, but maybe a newer version of a fixed grip chair, maybe with a conveyor load that lets them load easier. They'll eventually come in and get a replacement. What does it take to make those happen? Are you waiting on the capital? Are you waiting for the demand? Are, are the current chairs just handling the crowds over there okay? And you don't see the need for it now? Or What's your process for when you decide to actually make that upgrade? Yeah, it's not a capacity issue. So the terrain that they feed are easily fed from a fixed grip double. And it's more a matter of that modern resort 
feel. I mean, Uller is maybe a higher priority in that it's a beginner lift and the center pole riblets don't retrofit to a, uh, a safety bar. And I, it would be nice to have a safety bar on that lift. So then it's really when you can stage your capital improvements. And, you know, the list of what skiers want is long. I hear it a lot. People will come and find me and <laughs> tell me all the things that we need to do. And if yeah. there's anybody that knows them, it's those of us who are neck deep in it, but it, it all has to get staged on when you can. And installing the Raptor Express clearly has more meaning for our skiers right now than a equal replacement of a fixed grip double. All right, Jim, let's finish up today with a talk on some of your passes. Midwest Family Ski Resorts, now that you have three ski areas, introduced a really cool product this year, a season pass called the Legendary Pass. And there's various tiers of that that give you different levels of access to Snow River, Granite Peak, and Lutzen. And you did have a combo pass with Granite and Lutzen before, but you also had single mountain passes. As far as I can tell, you got rid of the single mountain passes and now only sell the combo passes. Talk about that decision and why ultimately it made sense to transition to the legendary pass for all three ski areas. Um, we are clearly seeing some excitement for it. It impacts, I think, the Granite Peak pass holders most. They've always been more of a season pass destination. They're closer to population than either Snow River or Lutzen. And so it's an easy jaunt for many of those pass holders to pop up to Snow River and Lutzen's maybe been on the wish list for a while, but now having it included with their past just makes it like, why wouldn't we? So I think we will see that. And, and there was significant enthusiasm for that. The Lutzen pass holders, it's a split between a local population, uh, Duluth and Thunder Bay, day visitors, and then kind of second home buyers. They live somewhere else in the region, but have a condo or a cabin or a home up here and get those. And, and so they're all really more connected to Lutzen, um, mm -hmm. with maybe the exception of the Duluth market. For a Duluth skier to get a legendary pass and be able to ski both Lutzen and Snow River, I think will be a, a significant offer there that we'll see people take us up on. And the price didn't change significantly, so it allows more access and hopefully more people. So for folks who are not quite ready for that season pass commitment, you can get two days at each of those three ski areas owned by Midwest Family Ski Resorts by purchasing an Indy Pass. And Lutzen's been a longtime member of the Indy Pass since the 2020 to 21 ski season. How happy are you in general with the Indy Pass, Jim? What's made you stick with it this long? Uh, yeah, we wanted to look at it carefully. It's a shared revenue model. So money goes in and then you get paid out based on how many visits you ski. And so clearly there's going to be a discount of your average yield on it, but it's, you know, with our full price ticket, you know, the number of people who just buy a single day at the window at that price is quite small. Uh, mm -hmm. People buy multi-days, they will buy vacation packages, they will buy early, they, you know, where there's incentives. And when we average that into our structure, the Indy Pass is not far off of that. We were concerned about cannibalizing existing skiers who would switch over and just buy Indy Passes because it was less expensive than they could get their trips in. And so far, that's mostly not what we've seen, that the Indy Pass skiers have been these skiers who, in fact, were maybe taking that Western trip instead of us. And now we are the also trip to it. And so I think that has worked well in our favor. And we've been a great partner for Indy because Minnesota became one of the top selling states. 
and Lutzen, one of the top 10 resorts and redemptions. So India was not your first multi-mountain pass coalition. Lutzen was actually a member of the Max Pass, which is fading from memory, but that gave five days each at a whole bunch of different ski areas and essentially became or evolved into the Icon Pass. Altera, I think, does not appreciate the Midwest. The only resorts to this day they include on are Boyne's two ski areas, and I think Boyne probably just makes them do that. I thought it was a mistake to not keep enroll Granite and Lutzen onto the Icon Pass. How disappointing was that for you? Or do I have this wrong? And did you say, wait, seven days is too much. We don't want any part of that. No, if we would have been invited into the um, Icon at the start, we would have jumped on that. Um, it's a awesome group of areas. So, I mean, you know, the partners you're with is very solid. And quite honestly, I think it was an oversight from them on not realizing the importance of having some Midwest that Indy found because that Midwest resort is kind of the piece that makes the pass affordable. It's like you do one trip out West and you're going to use these days. Is, is this paying for itself or not? And if you can also get some local skiing in, it makes it a much easier decision. Altira chose to not go that pass. Uh, Indy was really going after that. And, and I think we've shown that formula works well for Indy and for us. Certainly does. Well, you're doing a lot of things right up there, Jim. I am really pumped for this season and, and this new lift and everything you have going on there. Best of luck with that lodge rebuild. I will let you go now because I've kept you way longer than I promised, but I do appreciate that. And I'm sure the Lutzen faithful will as well because there's a lot of great insights in there. So wishing you a, a very, very good season. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. That's Jim Vick. General Manager of Lutzen Mountains, Minnesota. Jim, that was fantastic. You are juggling multiple crises and setbacks with an optimism and determination we could all learn from. Thank you all very much for listening. Midwest, I appreciate you. This may have been my first episode focused exclusively on Minnesota, but it will not be the last. I have another conversation exploring the great Buck Hill, Minnesota, scheduled for early 2024. And you will find a ton of Midwest pods in the archives, including one with Charles Skinner himself and episodes with the leaders of Granite Peak, Cascade Mountain, Whitecap Mountains, Little Switzerland, Mount Bohemia, Nubs Knob, Caberfay, Boyne Mountain, and many more. And I am scheduling more Midwest podcasts all the time. This is the only national ski brand that continuously covers the Midwest, and I will always make it a priority to do so. To get new episodes the moment they're live, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow Storm on Twitter and Instagram, at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.